Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up the longest sermon series ever in the history of Paradox in the book of John with this sermon today, which is entitled Preposterous Resurrection. Last week, we talked about Mary Magdalene's witness of the resurrected Christ. She is the high priest of the resurrection because she was the first to discover the empty tomb and, according to John's gospel, the first to see the resurrected Christ. The story we're going to talk about today happens 12 hours later when 10 of the 12 disciples are in a room and we read about these 10 disciples in John chapter 20 and it takes place on that Sunday evening. Verses 19 to 21 read, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After Jesus said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you you. So Jesus, after first appearing to Mary Magdalene, that evening appears in a room before 10 of his disciples and tells them and shows them and is living before them as the resurrected Christ. Now, what's strange about this encounter is that two of the disciples were missing. While we expect one disciple's absence, namely Judas, who betrayed Jesus, The other disciple, Thomas, that was not there, was a surprise because we assume he would be with them. So the friends of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, tell Thomas, who was not there, they say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord, but he refuses to believe them. And we read about Thomas's doubt in chapter 20, verse 24 and 25, with these words, but Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So John in chapter 20 tells us three different resurrection stories. The first where Jesus appears before Mary Magdalene and the second before 10 disciples and the third before 11 disciples. John then wraps up these three resurrection story with these two verses, the last two verses in chapter 20, when he writes, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. 
And so the message from John is that we have heard these stories. John has told us these stories so that we might believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And organizations formed around these testimonies and these witnesses and these words and these organizations were called churches. And the church for the past 2,000 years has existed to proclaim the good news. He is not here. He is risen. The tomb is empty. And Jesus Christ conquered the grave. And most churches I know will tell you that they exist to proclaim the good news of the resurrection week after week after week. And most churches meet on Sunday to remind ourselves that the message that is at the foundation of our theology is the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is a big deal in Christian theology. And here we have churches telling us that we must believe in the same way that those who have gone before us have believed. What the church does not tell you is that at some point in your life, if you believe wholeheartedly in the resurrection, then it is almost guaranteed that you will shortly thereafter begin to doubt that the resurrection occurred. I went through one of these seasons during my mid-20s. And I remember in my mid-20s, I went to pastors and religion teachers and I asked them repeatedly, can you tell me about the evidence that we have that Jesus Christ rose from the grave? And their answers, even though I was asking a wide variety of people, were rather similar. I'd like to synthesize their answer about the best evidence we have in the following words. These religious leaders and pastors told me the best evidence we have that Christ rose from the dead is that 11 disciples were filled with fear in a locked room. Then something happened in that room and they went out and told the world that Christ rose from the dead. And 10 of those 11 disciples chose to die for the fact that they saw the resurrected Christ rather than recant and save their own lives. And upon presenting this evidence before me, they would return back to that one phrase they said, something happened in that room. When those disciples were cowering in fear, afraid they were going to lose their lives. Now one of two things would happen, the church said. Either you believe that they actually saw Jesus in the flesh resurrected from the grave, or you believe that they looked at each other and said, let's pull off the greatest intellectual heist in human history. And let's put our own lives at risk and be willing to die for this lie and tell the world that Jesus rose from the dead even though we didn't see him. So, the church would ask, what do you believe happened in that room? Because the fact that these disciples were willing to die for their faith is the best evidence we have that Jesus rose from the grave. And I remember having these conversations with pastors and religious teachers and thinking to myself, wow, that is incredible faith. Imagine having something so close to your heart that you are willing to die for it. I remember thinking if I was in that room, man, then I would have unshakable faith. And this evidence filled me with a tinge of jealousy. Jealousy that these guys got to see the resurrected Christ 
And I only get to hear about their experience. And while the church can confidently say that this is the best evidence we have, it made me feel like I was missing out on something. And while I left those conversations often feeling reassured of the actual resurrection, I felt like there was a bit of a problem with this whole arrangement in that these guys got to see something that I don't. Now, I'm not the first person to have a problem with this because there is another man who would stand up and say, this is preposterous. Now, that man's name is Thomas Paine. And the name Thomas Paine may sound familiar to you because you have listened to the Hamilton soundtrack. On the song Schuyler's Sisters, Angelica Schuyler raps these words. I've been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine. Some men say that I'm intense or I'm insane. You want a revolution? I want a revelation. So listen to my declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to compel him to conclude women in the sequel. You're welcome, world. You're welcome. So Angelica Schuyler says that she's been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine, which most of America read that essay, which was written in January of 1776. Now, most historians point to this essay as being one of the most influential pieces of literature that led to the Declaration of, of Independence and then eventually to the Revolutionary War, which we won, by the way. Here we are, the United States of America, great at winning wars and terrible at preventing diseases. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon? Let's just move on. So Thomas Paine writes one of the most influential pieces of literature in American history. 18 years later, he decides he's going to write about something else. And in 1794, he published the first part of what would become the book called The Age of Reason. And his central premise of the Age of Reason is that the central premise of Christianity is preposterous. He specifically writes about the resurrection with these words in this book that was published in 1794. His words are, a thing which everybody is required to believe requires that the proof and evidence of it should be equal to all and universal. As the public visibility of the resurrection was the only evidence that could give sanction to the former part, the whole of it falls to the ground because that evidence never was given. Instead of this, a small number of persons, not more than eight or nine, are introduced as proxies for the whole world to say that they saw it and all the rest of the world are called upon to believe it. But it appears that Thomas did not believe the resurrection, and as they say, would not believe without having ocular and manual demonstration himself, so neither will I. And in something that seems to be a coincidence, but seems less so the closer you look at it, Thomas Paine most identifies with the disciple Thomas in this story. So let's break down what Thomas Paine's argument is. Here you have all of the people living 2,000 years ago. Then a handful of people get to witness the resurrection firsthand. That handful of people then goes out and tells the world, we have seen the resurrected Lord. And the rest of the world says, that's great. We'd like to see the resurrected Lord too. And the handful of people say, oh, um, you can't see him. 
And the world says, what? Why not? Where is he? If you say he's alive, just take us to him. And that handful of people say, well, you see, he left. He went back to heaven. It's the darndest thing. Now, in this conversation between the handful of people that witnessed the resurrection and the world, there is an awkward pause. And then someone from the world asks, why wouldn't Jesus show himself to everyone on earth so that we all could believe? Why do we need to take your word for it? And Thomas Paine would point to this illustration and ask, see what I mean? Preposterous. Now, if you read the introduction to Age of Reason, Thomas Paine will tell you that he believes in God, but this God doesn't require a resurrection. So then where does Thomas Paine go to learn about God? Well, he answers that question in the Age of Reason, but you have to remember before you read it that Thomas Paine really believes that if one person knows more or gets to see more about God than the rest of us, then that God is interested in inequality. So for Thomas Paine, revelation has to be equally accessible by all. And the only revelation of God that is equally accessible by all is creation. So with that in mind, Thomas Paine writes these words in the Age of Reason. He says, the word of God is the creation we behold. And this word of God revealeth to man all that is necessary for man to know of his creator. So creation is ultimately the testament of who God is because creation is accessible by all. Therefore, it overrides any kind of person standing up and saying, I know more about God than you, or I am privy to information about God that you don't get to see for yourself. You just need to take my word for it. Thomas Paine points to creation and says, we can learn all we need to know about God from the sky and the rocks and the trees and the ponds and the oceans and the lakes. Now, no matter what you personally believe, I think that we can all admit that Thomas Paine makes a compelling argument. It's an old argument, but it's a compelling argument. And when we talk about how old this argument is, I mean, it's a 200-year-old argument, and it feels like it was written yesterday. Oh, wait, did I? Did I misspeak? Did I say it was a 200-year-old argument? My bad. It's actually a 2,000-year-old argument. And Thomas Paine was not the first person to argue that creation is the ultimate testament of God. You see, 2,000 years ago, we are introduced to a man named Paul the Apostle. Now, Paul traveled around the world telling people about the resurrected Christ. And while he was traveling, Paul would write letters to different churches around the Mediterranean Sea. He wrote one letter to the church in Rome, and that is the book of Romans that is found in our Bible today. Now, when Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome, he knows that this church is made up of people who have grown up with religion and have devoutly followed the words of Scripture. These people at church are the Jews. Now, they are sitting side by side with people who have not spent any time in a religious setting, 
who have only known a religious setting as a form of institutional power for the state. And these people are the Gentiles. And they're hearing brand new ideas every week. They are new to this whole religious monotheist thing, right? Now, what most people don't know is that in Romans, Paul writes to both Jews and Gentiles, or the religious and the non-religious. And he addresses those groups individually in order to meet them where they are. There is one compelling passage where Paul addresses the Gentiles in chapter 1 of Romans. Now, when Paul addresses the Gentiles, we assume he is going to tell them to look at the religious elite of their community as role models. He would say, trust them. They know more about the Bible than you do. Learn from their ways. Learn how to pray from them because they've been doing this for a long time. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he writes these words to the Gentile in verse 19 and 20 of Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to the Gentiles because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. In other words, Paul says, Gentiles, you have no excuse because you have creation and you can know all you need to know about God through creation. Religion has nothing to add to the testament of creation. Whew. Now it's here that if the church was listening to our conversation on this podcast, they would stand up and say, this theological idea is simply preposterous. Let's hope that no one ever reads Romans. And you may be saying to yourself, Craig, that's a nice idea, but you're proof texting. You're taking one text out of context to prove your point. I would say, I know, I understand that Romans has a thesis statement about the faithfulness of God being revealed by the faithfulness of man. And this verse is particularly in support of Paul's first supporting argument of that thesis. And that first supporting argument is about how religion first and foremost holds a mirror up to ourselves so that we can change and transform personally before we point the finger and judge others. So in the context of that argument, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to let the Jews know that the Gentiles have been just as close to God as they have been their entire lives. So all of that is in support of his first supporting argument that supports his overall thesis of Romans. But Paul doesn't just say this to the church in Rome. He also says this to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, which is my favorite passage in all of Scripture, Paul writes, With all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of God's will. Now, I've often spoken to people who wonder what God's will is for their lives. Paul tells you in Ephesians chapter 1, so he writes, with all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of God's will, according to God's good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in God, things in heaven and things on earth. So in other words, Paul says, you want to know what God's will is? It's to reconcile, renew, and give resurrection to all things. 
Not just some things, not the good things, not the happy times, but also the sad times, the difficult times, the times when things break you wide open. Everything can be reclaimed, renewed, reborn through God. That is the will of God. Now, the church doesn't like that because the church likes to separate things between the sacred and the secular. So this church would respond to Ephesians 1 by saying this theological idea is simply preposterous. Let's all hope that no one ever reads Ephesians. But it's not just Romans and Ephesians. You can also find this in the first chapter of Colossians when Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossae. These are his words in verses 15 and 16. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through God and for God. In other words, everything that you see and touch and feel and experience is created by God and is the ultimate testament to who God is. And the majority of churches in America would respond to Colossians chapter 1 by saying this theological idea is simply preposterous. Let's all hope that no one just reads any of Paul's letters. And if Thomas Paine read Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and Romans 1 and realized that Paul was making the exact same argument he would make 1,800 years later, we would assume that Thomas Paine would look at Paul and say, wait, did we just become best friends? But when you read The Age of Reason, you realize there's a whole chapter devoted to Thomas Paine dismantling the theology of Paul. To which, if we could ask Paul, Paul, how do you feel about this? He would look at Thomas Paine's writings and say, well, he didn't dismantle my theology. Instead, Thomas Paine dismantled my theology as the church tells the world my theology is. And when you look at what Paul actually wrote, something that we all have to acknowledge is that there is a cavernous difference between what the church tells you Paul's theology is and what Paul's actual theology is. And I would hope that you read Ephesians and Romans and Colossians for yourself, and you may disagree to the conclusions that I've come up with, but I will tell you that what the church tells you Paul believed is a far cry from what Paul actually believed and did. And I believe that if Paul read Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, with Thomas Paine telling the world that this resurrection thing is unfair, that a handful of people get to experience and we're all somehow required to believe it. And then he would go on to say that creation is the ultimate testament of God. I truly believe that Paul the apostle would 100% agree with Thomas Paine. Which raises the question, where on earth did Paul come up with all of these ideas that have somehow, someway stood the test of time. Well, to understand where these ideas came from, you have to go back 2,000 years to that handful of people telling the world, we have seen the resurrected Lord. And when they tell the world this, they all of a sudden encounter Paul, and Paul responds to them by saying, guys, I saw him too. 
And you can almost hear the handful of people who saw it at the resurrection responding by saying, what? You weren't there. Why would God appear to you without us there? And Paul would say, I don't know. But while I was traveling on the way to Damascus, God confronted me and I saw the face of God and it was Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul has this encounter with God, he has really one of two choices to make. He can go out and tell the world, I now understand God better than everyone else. But that's not what Paul did. Instead, Paul went out and told the world, I now understand that God is bigger than my religion. And the story of Paul teaches us that the resurrection of Christ is much bigger than 11 disciples. And Paul went out and his message was incredibly fresh. And it was all this different take on who God was and where God was. And there's one story in particular where Paul goes to Lystra, which is in modern day Turkey. And he shows up and there's no religious people around. There are no Jews there. So he shows up and he starts talking to them and he talks to them about who God is. And he says, guys, God is here in Lystra and you already know God. God is found in the food that you eat and the air that you breathe. God is found in the sun above the sky and in the rains that fall. God is all around you. And all I am here to do is to tell you that God is with you. And when you look at the theology of Paul's missionary journeys, which are told in the book of Acts, it becomes apparent that what Paul really believes is that God will never ask you to trust someone else's experience with God more than your own. And so when I look back at those 11 disciples and I think about how if I was in that room, then I would have unshakable faith. Paul would tell me, no, no, Craig, don't you see? You are as close to God today as any of those disciples were in that room 2,000 years ago. And if we really believe Paul and what he writes about, then the best evidence is not what happened in a room 2,000 years ago. Instead, the best evidence is what is happening all around us right here and right now in 2020. And the church's role is to point at reality that we experience together and tell us that resurrection is the basis of all reality. And the church is here to help us see the resurrection that happens all around us. When I say that resurrection is the basis of all reality, let me explain what I'm talking about. When you look through the cosmos, you realize that all material reality is the result of stars giving birth and stars dying. In fact, our planet is made up of the material and atoms of dead stars. So the pattern of the cosmos is death giving way to life, which gives way to death, which gives way to life once again. When you consider our own bodies, our bodies are composed of countless cells. 
And these cells reproduce and they die and we shed them and then we welcome new cells in. And these cells are constantly caught in a cycle of death giving way to life and then life giving way to death. Think about the food that you and I eat today. The food that we eat was once living, but now that it is dead, we can eat and continue to live our own lives as well. If you're a vegetarian, the plants that you are eating were once alive, but are now dead. When we consider botany, we bury a seed and then later watch it rise up from the ground. This is a pattern of resurrection. And while those are all stories about the scientific world, there are stories about the human world as well that speak about resurrection. The suffering of this quarantine has been intense and it has been difficult to grasp. But when you talk about all the things that we have lost within the society, there is this one thing in my own experience that has resurrected, that has been brought up from the ground. And that is before this pandemic hit, it was really hard for my family, the four of us, to sit down for a family dinner. We always had something else going on. We were rushing from point A to point B. There were lots of social invitations to attend. But here in the midst of this pandemic, the thing that has been brought back to life in our family is the dinner table. I think of another story that happened just a couple of years ago. I was at a restaurant with my wife and two kids and I saw a family friend at the restaurant. Now this family friend was a little bit older than my parents and while my parents aren't old, the family friend is old if you get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> now what's remarkable about this family friend is that he, both of his parents were still alive when the story happened. And his parents were in their late 90s. And so I walked up to say hi to this family friend. And he said, Craig, how are you doing? And then he turned to his mom and dad and he said, Mom, Dad, do you know who this is? This is Roger Barnes' great-grandson. Now I have to tell you, I got real teary in that moment. And the reason I got teary is because I had never been introduced that way in my life before. And it's almost like being introduced like that to someone else reestablished and reconnected me to my ancestors in ways that I thought were once dead. It's almost like he brought them back to life in calling me by that name. Another resurrection story that I witnessed happened at a wedding. And at this wedding, I was officiating and I had done premarital counseling with the couple whose wedding I was officiating. And during premarital counseling, the groom told me about how he had gone through a divorce a few years before he met his new bride. And this divorce was not a pretty divorce. This was not a mutually agreeable distance. It was one where he had his heart ripped out. And it was one of those stories where you hear it and you think, how does anybody survive this? So anyways, fast forward to their actual wedding day where he is getting married to this new bride. 
And as she starts to walk down the aisle, I remember looking at this groom and just being filled with all kinds of emotion, thinking to myself, I can't believe he's going to try this again. I mean, if I went through what he went through, I'd be filled with bitterness and anger. And I would say, there's no way, there's no way I'm getting married again. But instead, he said to himself, I think it could be better. Yeah, it sucked before, but man, I really think that something better could happen if I give this another shot. And for me, it was extremely beautiful because it was this moment where even though he could have given up, he said, no, I think there's more to this story. And in that moment, he was living the resurrection. One last resurrection story happened to a friend of mine who started dating a girl and um, basically my friend's family did not approve of this woman. Now, I've seen families go through this before and when this happens, it gets ugly. You know it if you've lived it, right? And it got so ugly, in fact, that the wedding happened. I was at the wedding. It was tense, so tense. And shortly after they got married, my friend and his new bride moved across the country to get away from his family because it was an untenable situation. Now, my friend and his bride and his wife uh, didn't talk to his family for a year, for months after that as well. And then all of a sudden I heard they started talking again. And after all of this time apart, they started going to counseling together. And I haven't heard the whole story. It's not my story to hear, but I know that through dedicated time of going to counseling and working through and processing through what happened and asking for forgiveness, this family, after years apart, has reunited. And I will tell you that I often read about miracles in the Bible. But this is one of the greatest miracles that I have personally witnessed because I thought it was over. And what once was dead was brought back to life again. I tell you all of this because resurrection is the basis of our reality. And every human being, not just a privileged few, Every human being is a witness to the resurrection. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, I hope and I pray that Paradox Church helps you to see the resurrection that is happening all around you. My hope and my prayer is that Paradox Church will help you to trust your firsthand experience with God. My hope and my prayer is that you may step forward in the confidence that when things are looking grim, that you can look for resurrection in the midst of the darkness. And my hope and my prayer is that you and I can meet in person again soon. And we can meet in person so we can tell each other our resurrection stories.
Because whenever that day occurs that we can sit together in church again, it will be another resurrection story. And we will tell our kids and our children that we believe in resurrection because we lived it. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in the midst of this quarantine. Amen.